Welcome to this edition of the Adelphoi podcast. Just so you know, Adelphoi is a music production company based in London and Amsterdam, and we do music and sound design for audio branding and commercials worldwide. And we're very good, and this podcast series is, is a kind of an offshoot of the work that I do there. I'm Jamie Masters, and I'm talking to you from North London in the autumn of 2020. I've got Eddie and Susie here as usual to help out, and my phantoms and figments are probably around somewhere too. Oh yes. Oh, oh hey. That's us. Once again, I'm looking into audio branding. And in this episode, I want to start thinking about sonic logos generally, as a category, as an idea. Sonic logos are the flagship product of the audio branding industry, and for a lot of people, that may be all that they ever know about audio branding. You know, it's McDonald's, it's Intel Inside. They're not always called Sonic logos, there are plenty of other terms for them. I've seen things like audio signature or or mnemonic acoustic logo, audio logo. yeah yeah there's logo. yeah that's that's good yeah yeah that's fair enough yeah okay but whatever you call them they've become a familiar feature of the modern marketing landscape and there's some consensus about what they're for but sonic logos are actually a pretty blurry category and i think a lot of our intuitions about them what they are how they work why we have them come from several different directions, each with their own rationale, all kind of lumped together without worrying too much about how they fit. So there are a lot of things we could call sonic logos that actually function in very different ways. And the danger there is that we end up making simple logical errors, assuming that what works for one works for all. Like, we know cats and dogs are both animals we keep as pets, but my dog isn't going to have nine lives, and I'm never going to be able to give orders to a cat. Uh, something went wrong there. Um, Eddie, I thought you said you were going to sort these out. Yeah, well, a bit late now, isn't it? So to get the ball rolling, here's an uncontroversial example of a modern Sonic logo that came out in 2019. That's HSBC. It's a big brand. That little tune may not be as well known as McDonald's or Intel, but, you know, give it time. And a lot of money and effort went into creating something the brand would really be able to get behind. It's quite short, sometimes actually abbreviated to just the last three notes. And I reckon it's definitely a Sonic logo because you always hear it over the visual logo at the end of their ads and their online video content. And it's a bare, stripped-back, unharmonised melody, so it's meant to be some kind of a, an essence. But it's got enough going on in the sound itself to give it a distinct character. There's a kind of echoey piano with some other electronic stuff. And it's always the same, so over time we can expect people to get gradually more familiar with it and identify it with the brand. So you can see that I'm working to a rough and ready definition of a Sonic logo as a branding device using audio that in some way mirrors the function of a graphic logo, maybe even runs in parallel with it. 
I don't expect that to raise any eyebrows. That's a pretty standard idea. So now here's another well-known Sonic logo. That's 20th Century Fox. Obviously quite a different kettle of fish. But no one would deny that that piece of music represents the 20th Century Fox brand actually very successfully. It's probably one of the best-known brand logo themes in the world. It has no other purpose. You wouldn't listen to it as music. And it's used consistently over a brand graphic. You know the one, that kind of stone sculpture of the brand name on a plinth with searchlights washing over it in the twilight. The theme is recognisable enough without the graphic, though I don't think it gets used that way much in practice. So, as I see it, there's no good in-principle reason to exclude either the 20th Century Fox Sonic or the HSBC Sonic from the club but it's equally obvious that they're not quite the same sort of thing. There are interesting and important distinctions to be made between them. Well, let's talk about 20th Century Fox. Obviously, it's a much longer, fuller musical production. It's actually grown a bit since it debuted way back in 1933, that whole second half with the strings, you know, da 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 da, da 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 da, da 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 da, that part was all added in 1953 when they introduced Cinemascope, the new widescreen film format with stereo sound. And you can see the point of that extra chunk of music. It doubles the length, it gives the whole theme more weight, and that violin bit keeps reaching upwards over those changing chords in a way that gives it. an added intensity and dramatic heft. It promises a thrillingly epic experience for you, the filmgoer. This is Eddie, by the way. Yeah, it's the 20th century Fox sort of filmy thing thing before a film thing. The drum roll at the beginning and the fact that, you know, the brass or whatever is ascending in volume is sort of building suspense for this big spectacle that you're about to see which is their film and it's sort of it it is very exciting it definitely makes it more of a uh, it definitely makes going to the cinema or you know having a movie night much more exciting and much more of an event don't let's get too distracted by the fact that the 20th century fox theme comes from such a different era It's still very much in use, and really I'm offering it as an example of a whole class of Sonic logos, which is cinema idents. And I could have made my point with something much more recent, like like this. Studio Canal from 2011. 
Maybe less epic and imposing than the 20th Century Fox theme, but it's about the same length and it's played over the Studio Canal logo animation. So I think that means it's in the club. Eddie's very keen on this one. That is one of my favourite ones. It's, um, I remember I, I saw it at the beginning of Paddington. Yeah, I vividly remember that sound and vividly remember like the images that go with it. It looks like ripples of water, um, you know, of multiple, like lots and lots of colours. One thing about cinema idents is that there's no real restriction on their length. They can take a bit of time to paint a musical picture. And they come at the beginning of a film, unlike an HSBC kind of Sonic, which is part of an ad. They're attached to the product itself, the movie. And they're a kind of appetizer, like a drum roll. And by the time you hear them, chances are you've already bought into what they're selling. Cinema idents do several things. They're a kind of stamp of quality on the product, which is one of the original roles of branding, still very important. They're telling you things about the character of the brand, what it stands for. But, as much as anything else, they're about getting you all tingly with anticipation. What makes a musical theme so effective is that it comes pre-soaked with feelings from all the other times you've heard it. It's a kind of emotional sponge. Of course, that's true generally about music. I mean to say, music is amazingly absorbent. It picks up associations all the time, all over the place. And if we think of music as having meaning at all, a lot of that meaning comes down to those associations. Associations with experiences we've had, and in fact, with other pieces of music. So, for instance, the 20th Century Fox theme sounds majestic and... What's that, Susie? It's a bit martial. It is quite self-aggrandising. But, hey, I think 20th Century Fox obviously feels very important and it was massive. It's very self-important. So, a sort of grand introduction for something big and important. And we know that because we recognise things in it that are like a military-type fanfare for a royal entrance. And we may even recognise that a lot of cinema music had this sort of flavour back in the 1930s and 40s. This is an early one from Universal in the 1940s. It's not something they particularly stuck with, but you can hear the same sort of triumphant, military, brass-heavy orchestra approach. On the other hand, the Studio Canal ident sounds more intriguing and... It's magical and, you know, exciting and um, it's almost like Harry Potterish, you know, when you're getting to the climax of the movie and it's all very exciting. Yeah, magical. Bit Christmassy too. And that's because of a long history of pieces of music, like this one by Tchaikovsky, that used small bell sounds to represent sparkly, magical things. And tremolando strings, Sibelius this time, for tingly energy, and the Harry Potter music is just a recent incarnation of that musical shorthand. So we understand what these cinema themes are trying to say, because we know how to pick up all the little cues and sub-cues that tell us what the music means. These are things we've learned from our whole experience of listening. As children, we all go through a process of enculturation in which we acquire that knowledge. And over time, 
we build up a huge repertoire of associations, some personal and unique, so that our response to music is never exactly the same as other people's, but some that we do more or less share with everyone in our society. So when we listen to music in our adulthood, our unconscious brains spot the connections and decode them and make sense of how they fit together or cut across each other or or pull apart. That's what's going on under the hood, and that's a big part of what we enjoy in music and, and what gives music meaning. So that's a general point about all music, but what I'm talking about here is something a bit more pointed, and that is an automatic emotional response to a specific audio trigger. So in a way I'm talking about conditioning here, you know, Pavlov's dogs. I'm referring, of course, to a famous and frankly notorious set of experiments by the Russian scientist Ivan Pavlov in the late 1800s involving some dogs in a laboratory, and he'd set it up so that there was always a particular sound playing, like a buzzer, whenever the dogs were being given food. And so the dogs associated that sound with the food, and eventually Pavlov could get them to salivate just by playing that sound. So that's a kind of physical, behavioural reaction, but music can have a similar sort of effect on us humans emotionally. It's what music psychologist Patrick Yuslin, for instance, refers to as evaluative conditioning. In fact, here's what Yuslin has to say about it. Uh, um, Susie, could you do the honours? OK. Um, I think he's Swedish. Can you, can you manage a Swedish accent? You've got to be oh, joking. Okay. I can't do a Swedish well, accent. Right. Could it could it be like this? Uh, Evaluative conditioning um, refers to a process whereby an yeah. emotion is induced by a piece of music. Maybe not. I actually can't remember what a Swedish accent sounds like. So um, look, just just do it. Just do it in your normal voice. This refers to a process whereby an emotion is induced by a piece of music simply because this stimulus has been paired repeatedly with other positive or negative stimuli. Thus, for instance, a particular piece of music may have occurred repeatedly together in time with a specific event that always made you happy, for example, meeting your best friend. Over time, through repeated pairings, the music will eventually come to evoke happiness, even in the absence of the friendly interaction. So there's two elements here. Something that happens regularly, like, I don't know, going to a movie and a piece of music that you hear repeatedly in that situation, like a cinema ident. And that creates a mental link. So when you hear that piece again, you, you kind of revisit the same emotions that you felt all those other times. And this kind of conditioning basically works on your unconscious. So you may not have any idea it's happening, and the effect is probably stronger if you don't. And it's quite persistent and hard to get rid of, but at least, if you're aware of it, you can choose to fight it, if you want. So, movie idents are carrying a musical meaning, like trying to say grandiose Hollywood spectacle, or alternatively, modest, intriguing magic. But whatever that meaning is... They're also there to soak up all the excitement and anticipation that we get just before seeing a big movie, 
and to splurge that back onto us every time we hear them. And that unconscious emotional response becomes at least as important as the meaning. And not just movie idents, but actually any music that we hear regularly in the cinema before the start of the programme. Here's something you won't recognise unless you've lived in the UK. That's the theme tune for Pearl and Dean that used to introduce British cinema ads before the main feature, which was always the first bit of music you heard when the lights went down. In this version, it ran from the early 70s to 1996, I'm told, and they actually kept using that same crunchy old recording for all that time, sort of because they were afraid to change it for fear of losing the effect, because it became so iconic. They did eventually have to re-record it and made a new animation for it. And you can hear that new cleaned-up version in some cinemas even today. For me, the original version is so redolent, so evocative, that I almost feel like I don't need to say any more. But, of course, it was only ever played in British cinemas, and you have to be of a certain age to have caught the full force of it. Eddie, for instance, doesn't know it at all. It means nothing to him. No idea what that was. Uh, towards the end, it just felt like James Bond except happy and not interesting and dangerous. I didn't like it. But for anyone who grew up in the UK during the end of the last century, like me or Susie... Oh, I absolutely love that. That's my favourite. That's my childhood going to cinemas. That's Pearl and Dean. I love it. For us, the Pearl and Dean theme was synonymous with going to the cinema. But don't take our word for it. Here are some comments I plucked from YouTube. Classic. And I can smell when the hot dogs. I was a kid and this music came on, I got more excited the for the cinema film. cinema just wouldn't be the same without I hearing I loved that right before the start of the film. You actually heard that, it was the main The best picture. part of any cinema experience just isn't the same was without the highlight it. of the trip to my local cinema. Just wasn't a complete trip to the cinema if this bad boy tune wasn't played. Powerful stuff. Cinema idents are often quite traditional in style. That's definitely true of 20th Century Fox and true even of companies like, well, Universal, that waited until the 1990s to settle on one consistent brand theme. Universal. You did recognise it. Universal. It feels like a, a spectacle, very uh, expensive. It's very similar to the 20th Century Fox one. And obviously, you choose a style like that because it makes sense for a cinema ident to go epic and cinematic with the music. And a lot of other studios went down exactly the same route. As for the Pearl and Dean theme, I think at the time, 1972, uh, they went for quite a contemporary sound. It sounded very 60s. It's got a really 1960s feel to it. I, I've no idea when it, was, when it was made, when it was written. But by the end of its long run... It was practically a museum piece. Being cutting-edge and innovative doesn't seem to matter for these idents as much as it does, say, for the movies themselves. And I guess that's because they don't need to change. They don't need to prove how modern and relevant they are because their greatest value is as emotional triggers 
playing on all our memories and on that nostalgic ache for childhood. You know, for the same reasons that at Christmas time people keep going back to the same carols, the same old Christmas songs. And that's a good thing, right? It's nice for the audience because it intensifies the experience. It makes the whole run-up to the film more precious, more delectable. And just to spell it out, that's got to be good for the brand too, to have all those nice feelings associated with their logo. None of these cinema idents is actually part of a sales message, but then branding isn't about driving sales. I mean, not directly. What the idents do is create a kind of focus for our feelings about the brand. Feelings that, in this case, are probably overwhelmingly positive. Pearl and Dean wasn't a cinema studio, but a company that sold advertising on cinema screens. So, not a brand that audiences generally would have any interest in. But that theme tune has another point too, which is basically to make the adverts themselves seem more like part of the show, part of the entertainment. That's probably why it sounds so so filmy, so, well, James Bondy. It was like, you know, it had that... What, what is it? Towards the end, it had that dangerous vibe, except there were these happy voices, and yeah, it didn't... It... And that's good for the advertisers. The theme was popular with audiences and put people in a receptive mood for the marketing messages. And that itself was a selling point for the Pearl and Dean business. So, in a way, the ident was aimed at companies that might buy into what they were offering, you know, potential advertisers. And all that brand enhancement was not falling on deaf ears. I think it's a brilliant bit of sonic branding, in its own way on a par with the Intel bongs, in the sense that it gave an enormous public profile to a brand from a category that people don't normally encounter. How many other manufacturers of computer chips are household names? How many other dealers in cinema ads? So, cinema idents offer a very convincing demonstration of the power of music to enhance the perception of a brand. And it is music doing the heavy lifting here, even if it's always playing with a visual animation. It's music which has that visceral connection to emotional memory. But even as I say that, it's got to be obvious that most of the Sonic logos we're normally concerned with, the ones like HSBC that are used in advertising, don't have much opportunity to associate themselves with that kind of pleasurable experience. The thing that they're advertising, the product, isn't there. Any good feelings we might have about the brand from having bought their products or used their services are not there, not there to be linked in that moment to the Sonic logo. So Sonic logos in advertising must work on some other kind of basis. And maybe they really belong in a different category. Maybe this is like cats and dogs, and we need to be a bit cautious about taking what we know about the dogs and thinking it will work for the cats. Sit. Come on, Molly. Sit. Heel. Beg. Oh, I give up. 
So cinema idents have this big advantage that people tend to like them. A lot. And the same is true for TV idents. And I mention TV idents because they are often used as examples of successful audio branding. I'm thinking of things like Netflix. And HBO. Again, these are definitely Sonic logos because they represent the brand, they don't change, and they're played over the visual logo animation. But they're attached to their product, the TV show or the TV channel. They come at the beginning of the show, and they're there to elicit a conditioned emotional response. And maybe the sonic is designed so that it communicates some useful meanings, but what does the rest of the work is our memory of all those other times we were sitting in front of the TV, hearing this sound in a state of happy expectation. So again, I reckon if Netflix or HBO are our models of successful Sonic logos, then I'm not sure what that tells us about all those Sonic logos that play on the end of ads. I mean, Netflix has it easy, doesn't it? What is true of TV and cinema idents also kind of applies to things like startup noises on computers and phones, which often get discussed as examples of successful audio branding. Things like this. That's one of many startup sounds for Windows, each one associated with a different version of Windows, current at a different period of time. This one's Windows 2000. It's the one that happens to have the most meaning for me. And that's definitely doing the job of a Sonic logo. The Windows logo always comes up on the screen at the same time. Then there's the Apple startup. Uh, it's it's odd to think of that as a Sonic logo because it sounds so functional. But, well, trust me, it keeps turning up in lists of great audio branding and it's treated as a kind of Sonic logo and it's widely admired and, yeah, I recognise it as Apple. I would know it well enough to be able to identify it in pretty much any context. So, OK, let's run with it. Anyway, there are lots of devices that make their own special sounds at startup, and when it comes to things like game apps, they often play a sound and show a visual logo as they're loading up. So yeah, absolutely, that is audio branding, and most of those sounds are unarguably sonic logos, and very effective too. But maybe you can see where I'm going with this. These are all sounds associated with with a positive result, and in many cases, with an anticipated pleasure. I don't know, it depends what you switch the computer on for, but hey, at least it's working. Hooray! Another thing that these startup sounds have going for them is that you get to hear them very frequently, and usually over a long period of time, every time you switch on. So they really do burn themselves into your memory. Now that may not happen with adverts. We may not actually encounter a Sonic logo in advertising that often. And that must have some impact on how quickly or deeply we come to know it. 
So that's basically where I wanted to get to. That audio branding is a really broad concept. And there seem to be all sorts of things that you could legitimately call sonic logos. In fact, it would be very hard to call them anything else. But as a group, as a category, there's a big split in the middle between sonics that are part of the product and that gain positive associations from our good experiences with the product, and sonics like HSBC that appear on ads. I think it's important to recognise that advertising sonics form a special class of their own with a special set of challenges. Especially so because that's where all the action is for people like me who work in the audio branding industry. OK, so what do advertising sonics have going for them? How do they work if they don't have this evaluative conditioning thing going on? Well, that's the question I'll be coming back to in the next episode of this series. For now, that's all from me, Jamie Masters. Until next time. This podcast was brought to you by Adelphoi Music. Adelphoi Music is a music company based in the heart of London and Amsterdam, connecting brands to their audiences through music and sound. <laughs>